I certainly appreciate those kind words, and I have the greatest uh, love and appreciation for Tony Lawrence and the work that he and his good family have done here over the years and uh, throughout the kingdom, the influence that is exerted by this good family. Tony and I have been uh, friends for a long time and fellow gospel preachers, of course, but we don't get to be together as often as I would like, but uh, nonetheless, I have the deepest uh, appreciation for Tony and his family and what they mean to the kingdom of God. And I don't know how many years it is now that you've been here, Tony, but it's a long time. And that's a great tribute to this family. And it's a great tribute to the family of God here uh, because it speaks well for the wonderful, beautiful relationship that you have with uh, this family and the good that has been done and continues to be done because of that wonderful long-term relationship. Uh, the good uh, is just uh, uh, beyond uh, uh, estimation, I believe, and only eternity will tell. Uh, the good that this good congregation has done over the, over the years. Uh, it's always good to come back to this area, just about 20 miles from uh, my hometown of uh, Smithville, and uh, I love and appreciate uh, this area and this congregation in particular. And I appreciate very much the invitation from the elders and Tony to be a part of your summer series and to be here tonight. Tony mentioned the Good News Today program. Brother W.C. Chilton gave me a note and said, you need to plug your program. It'll be on at 9 o'clock tonight. It's <laughs> just reminding me what time it is. That's uh, central time. On the, That's on G GBN, I think. But uh, you can also see us on Sunday mornings out of Nashville on uh, uh, WUXP Channel 30 at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. The program is now on uh, several commercial stations, and we've been greatly blessed to be on in uh, all of the major cities in Tennessee, as well as Huntsville, Alabama, and of course on the internet and on GBN. Uh, we're not on in the Tri-Cities area of Bristol, Kingsport, and Johnson City, but there's a great probability that that's going to happen real soon, so we're excited about that possibility as well. The Lord has blessed us in this effort and continues to bless GBN, with which uh, I was associated for many, many years, and I love and appreciate that work. And they're in the Memphis area now, uh, housed there and headquartered there, and still doing a great work. And uh, I appreciate uh, that work and every good media outreach that uh, we have in our brotherhood, and we have many. And um, I appreciate uh, the Bobby Branch Church has done a program here for many, many years, or used to at least uh, uh, do, do a program. I remember that when I worked at WAKI in Mount Memorial years ago. We had Bobby Branch uh, on the air when I was uh, an announcer many, many years ago. In fact, they had the 50th anniversary yesterday of, of the WJLE radio station going on the air. And I was hired there when I was 17 years old, just, just graduating from high school, and they invited all the former employees back. And I'm getting a little too old to make a trip up here one day and then back home then up the next day, so I, I did a call-in interview with them. And, uh, but, um, boy, it makes you appreciate... Uh, Ooh, how fast time flies, 50 uh, years ago at that, uh, at that time. But it is great to be here, and I appreciate very much the very timely uh, theme of your summer series on uh, worship and uh, this particular assignment that I have been given of male leadership in worship. And I have, I have added to that title this, uh, this additional statement, Culture or Commandment. Um, the male leadership role in, in worship, is it a cultural thing or is it something that is an abiding, continual 
commandment. And I think you'll see the, the thrust of what we are driving at in that question because that is the issue with many today where changes are being made in worship and where male leadership especially is involved. The change is being made to allow women to take a more public role in public worship based upon the contention that Paul's teaching, which has been read in our hearing just a moment ago, particularly from that central passage in 1 Timothy 2, was a cultural uh, commandment, if you will, that it uh, was temporary and that it related to the culture of the time, but times have changed. And therefore, since that was not an abiding commandment, but rather pertained to the culture of the time, that time is no more. Therefore, we're free to, uh, to give women a greater latitude in terms of their participation publicly in the worship. Is that true or not? I'll tell you up front, it is not. It is not the case, and I believe we can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt to the honest observer and careful student of the Word of God that indeed what Paul wrote is an abiding principle and will last for as long as time stands until the Lord comes again because it was not cultural in nature. I know this is a timely topic because just a few days ago I received word through one of our members uh, who sent a text to my wife, I think, that indicated that the Sycamore View congregation in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where I uh, labored for many years and, as Tony mentioned, taught at the school, has now involved itself in what they have called a gender role study. And they have emerged from that gender role study with the conclusion that they can now allow women to take a more public part in the worship. They are stopping short of allowing them to become evangelists or elders, but they are uh, determining that they can take a more public role. I would assume leading prayer. I would assume serving at the Lord's table, things like that. Anything short of being an evangelist or an elder. And uh, they based that upon what they consider to be a careful study of the passages that pertain to this matter. But what about that? What does a careful study of the pertinent passages reveal? First of all, in John 4:24, Jesus said, as he had that exchange with the Samaritan woman there, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That establishes a foundational principle that is an eternal principle about worship. Anytime we engage in worship, we must do so in spirit and truth. What does spirit and truth refer to? What does that phrase refer to? What is spirit? Well, I believe we have an Old Testament parallel, really, in Joshua 24:14, where Joshua, as he had called together all the people and had uh, uh, reviewed with them in the first part of Joshua 24 what God had done for them, a beautiful history and review of God's goodness and love and mercy toward them. And then he comes to verse 14 where it's recorded, Therefore, therefore, based upon everything that God has done, serve the Lord, he says, in sincerity and truth. In sincerity and truth. Sounds very much like John 4:24. worship in spirit and truth. And spirit and sincerity are basically synonymous. In other words, to worship in spirit is to worship truly from the heart, wholehearted worship. It is a matter of attitude, spirit is. But truth is not simply another word repeating attitude. Uh, it pertains to something else altogether. God is concerned about 
our attitude. He is concerned about our being emotionally involved in our worship. He does not want us to simply go through the motions. I think surely we all understand and appreciate that. But the word truth has reference to something else altogether. In John 17, in the Lord's prayer to the Father, during his last hours on the earth, in a portion of that prayer that was uh, directed toward the apostles in terms of directing the prayer to God on behalf of the apostles, he said this, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart through your truth. And then he added, Your word is truth. Now, when he told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, that's attitude, sincerity, and truth, and he has prayed, Your word is truth, then worship must be in spirit and according to what? The Word. We are to worship in sincerity and according to truth, which is the Word of God. In other words, we are to worship according to the revealed Word of God. Is that something that is new to the New Testament? No, indeed. No, it goes all the way back to the very first recorded incident of worship in the Bible. That's in Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis 4, as you well recall, I'm sure you have the offerings that were made to God by Cain and Abel. Cain's offering was rejected. Abel's was accepted. Why? Because Cain was insincere. We have no right to assume that he was insincere in what he offered when he substituted the fruit of the ground. But what we do know is that Abel, based upon Hebrews 11, we are told, offered by faith a more excellent sacrifice God testifying of his gifts, not of his attitude, but his gifts. In other words, the difference between the two offerings was a matter of what was offered. Cain substituted the fruit of the ground. Abel offered the firstling of the flock, a blood sacrifice, which we can see the significance of as we see the unfolding of the scheme of redemption and that blood sacrifice that typified the ultimate shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. There was nothing in that fruit of the ground sacrifice that could possibly typify the shedding ultimately of the blood of Christ. So I believe we can understand, having the whole picture now before us, why it is that God was displeased with Cain's offering and pleased with Abel's. But did he have a right to be displeased? Well, of course he did. He is God. But what gave him that right? Because... He is a just God, and because he had obviously told both those men exactly what to offer. How do we know that? Because, going back to Hebrews 11:4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. By faith. And Romans 10:17 reminds us that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Therefore, if Abel offered by faith and hearing comes by, faith comes by hearing the word of God, then Abel offered according to what? Not the written word but the revealed word of God. Abel offered what God told him to offer. Cain did not offer what God told him to offer. And in that first recorded incident of worship to God, we find a principle that is everlasting and that has never changed. All the particulars of worship have, but not that principle. What is that principle? God has always specified what he wants in worship, and he wants that and nothing more. We come to the Mosaic Dispensation, and we see the incident in Leviticus 10, recorded there of Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange, as the King James says, the New King James says, profane fire. That is, it was profane because it had not been sanctified. There was a specific altar from which they were to, to obtain the fire 
to use in offering to God that had been sanctified and set apart for that. They offered fire, obviously, from a different location, a different fire that had not been sanctified. So what, someone might ask today regarding worship to God? Well, here's what. God struck them both dead, as we well know. The very sons of the high priest Aaron were struck dead because they deviated from the pattern of worship that God had set forth. In every dispensation of time, God has made it abundantly clear that He means what He says and says what He means about worship, including today in the new covenant. And yet some would have us believe, it would seem, that while God was very specific in the patriarchal dispensation about worship, very specific in the Mosaic dispensation, that when it came to the new covenant, the very culmination of everything that God had in mind long before the patriarchal dispensation, long before the Mosaic dispensation, that when it came to the fulfillment of God's plan for saving man and the ushering in of the church through which the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the world, God suddenly said, now forget the pattern. You do whatever you want to do. As long as you feel good about it, I'll feel good about it. How much common sense, let alone biblical sense, does that make? None whatsoever. What we should look for and expect based upon everything we have seen through the ages with God's dealing with man is that God would have a pattern for His church in terms of worship. And indeed, when we look for it, we see it. It is there. Five specific acts of worship, no more, no less. The very acts in which you have already been privileged and blessed to engage in today are the acts that are authorized by God. And not only the acts themselves, but the manner in which those acts are carried out. And that brings us to male leadership. In worship, some in the church have gone the way of many in denominationalism, tragically, in advocating leadership roles for women in violation of the clear teaching of the New Testament. And as we mentioned before, they claim that such teaching that we find in 1 Timothy 2 related to the culture of that day. Therefore, it was not commandment. It was cultural and has no application for us today. Now open your Bibles again to 1 Timothy 2, and let's look through these verses beginning at verse 8 and simply analyze them and see indeed whether or not this is commandment for all time or whether it was culture for Paul's time and therefore has no application to us today. First of all, as the New King James renders it, Paul says, I desire, I desire. The brother who read, read, I will. And it is will. It is determination. It's not a wish here. Paul is not saying, I wish the, I wish the men would do this, but if they don't, I'm okay with it. No, no, the word, the word is stronger than simply a, a wish. It can mean desire. But it is a word that carries with it also the idea of determination and the context here makes it abundantly clear. Paul is not wishing for something. He is determining something by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is directing something to take place. And that becomes abundantly clear when you contrast it to a statement he makes a little bit later as we shall see. So I desire, I determine, therefore, that the men... And that word men is a very important word. It is not the word that means mankind. If Paul had used the word anthropos, that means mankind, mankind would include womankind. 
He did not use that generic term to describe men and women. He used the word that can only apply to the male of the species. I desire, I determine that the male of the species, the word men is andros, from aner, it's the plural form, and it means the male of the species. It does not include, it cannot include women. So we have to understand that we're talking about the male of the species, Paul is here. And he says, I determine that the men, male of the species, do what? Pray everywhere. Now, obviously the context of 1 Timothy 2, 8 and following is a worship context, but the principles have application beyond the worship assembly, obviously. It deals with modesty. Are women allowed to be immodest as long as they're not immodest in the assembly? Well, of course not. We know that these principles extend beyond literally the worship assembly. But the general context here is a public gathering, a gathering of men and women who are here to worship God, that in those settings... I desire, I determine that the men pray everywhere. Now let me ask you, can women pray in this assembly? I hope all the women here have done so already here tonight. Obviously, women are to pray. They are to engage in the five acts of worship that are authorized in the New Testament. So he's not denying women the right to pray. Therefore, what must he be talking about? Leading in prayer. He's talking about taking the lead in leading in prayer. And obviously this would extend to every other act of worship in which we engage. But he mentions specifically prayer. That they pray, the men, where? Everywhere. This was a brotherhood-wide statement. A direction, a directive that is brotherhood-wide. And then he adds, lifting up holy hands. Now, The lifting up of hands in prayer was an Old Testament posture that we read about in 1 Kings 8, for example, verse 22. Nehemiah 8, verse 6. We read where those under the Old Covenant, many times they lifted up their hands in prayer. It was not the only posture we read about. Lying flat on the ground was also at times a posture in prayer. There is no binding specific posture in prayer. Prayer. Some of you may be old enough to remember some of the old-time preachers, and I remember in Smithville when, uh, when I was a young man and seeing Brother W.J. Lemons, who preached in Smithville on two different uh, occasions at two different times for a period of time. He would be up here, and when, uh, when the prayer was being led, he would kneel. Was it some sort of ostentatious type show he was trying to put on? No, he was, he was simply humbling himself, and he, uh, he chose that uh, method of prayer, uh, that posture in prayer, Uh, on his knee. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. But not everybody had to do that in order for their prayer to be heard, obviously. There is no binding posture in prayer. And the lifting up of hands, incidentally, and this would be a a side note, is something in which many, and many in the church, I'm afraid, are also getting involved in, in the lifting up of hands, but they're not even emulating the Old Testament practice in so doing from what I have uh, have heard about and actually seen, actually, on one occasion. Um, they lift them up, not with palms up, as if to receive the blessings, which I understand was the characteristic posture that was used in the Old Testament, but they lift them up, and not only do they lift them up, they begin to wave them. I remember when we did GBN at the Ryman years ago, and I was up on the stage, and I got a little concerned one night because I looked out in the audience there, and there was a woman who was who had her hands up, and she was 
waving her hands. That seems to be more characteristic of some. But it is um, in no way something that uh, is required, nor is it even in emulation of the Old Testament practice, the way some in the church even are doing it today. But when he says lifting up holy hands, he's not literally directing that you lift your hands when you pray. He's using an Old Testament posture in prayer to illustrate the importance of a holy character among those who lead prayer in public worship. In other words, those who lead prayer, the men who lead, need to lead holy lives before they lead in prayer. They need to be men who are characterized by holy conduct and who are living lives in harmony with God's will, adding here without wrath and doubting. Certainly they don't need to be people who are known for being uh, angry, uh, known to, uh, to have fits of temper, uh, known to express in prayer vindictive kinds of expression. Certainly not. That has no place uh, in the leading of public prayer. And so the direction here in verse 8 is clear. It's a determination on Paul's part by inspiration that the male of the species lead in prayer and lead in every aspect of public worship where? Everywhere, lifting up holy hands, meaning they are to be the right kind of people and they are not to have the wrong kind of attitude. Now, look at verses 9 and 10. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. It's not the purpose or scope of this lesson to discuss modesty in detail, but this is a passage that certainly needs to be, uh, needs to be included in a, a study of modesty. And Paul is saying here that obviously they don't need to be ostentatious. They don't, don't need to be uh, uh, too scantily clad, obviously, nor do they need to be to the other extreme so that they call so much attention to themselves that one is distracted from what one is there to do, and that is to worship God. And uh, I believe surely we know if we think as we should and are completely honest with ourselves what is or is not uh, modest in terms of, uh, of what we wear not only to worship uh, as women or men for that matter, but also at other uh, times. But it is important to uh, understand and appreciate the need for the right kind of apparel at every time, uh, not just in our worship. But let's look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now remember the contrast. I desire, as the New King James says, we've said, I determine, I will, I determine that the men pray everywhere. Now look at the contrast. I do not permit a woman. So you have the contrast. I permit men, and I will that it be the men who lead in prayer. On the other hand, I do not permit a woman to do certain things. So you see the contrast between the two. Now when he says, let a woman learn in silence, the word silence there in this text does not indicate or mean absolute silence. It is a word that means quietness, a quiet, submissive spirit. It does not preclude a woman singing in worship. She must sing if she's to be pleasing to God. We're to participate in every act of worship. And so the word here is not a word that in the original language of the New Testament means absolute silence. And some translations translate it quietness, quietness. 
And so it's not absolute silence that is enjoined upon the woman, but that she is to be in a submissive, quiet uh, role, as it were, in these mixed assemblies where men and women are both present. And he further adds, I do not. And by, by the way, back to the word learn, that is a present imperative, which means keep on learning. In other words, this is not something that uh, was... Uh, for one time and one time only in one location, this is something that is to be a continual process. Let her keep doing this. Let her keep uh, adapting this, uh, this posture and this, uh, this attitude. Let her keep on learning, in other words, in quietness with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, again, as we ask with the subject of prayer, can a woman pray? Of course she can. Well, we ask again, can a woman teach? Well, of course she can. A woman can teach other women. A woman can, uh, can teach children, as is, uh, I'm sure, the case here and in uh, virtually every congregation. Uh, women do teach, but the teaching here is the indication of delivering a public discourse in the context of a mixed assembly where men are present. Here's what he is not permitting. For a woman to deliver a public discourse, for a woman to stand in this pulpit as I am standing and to deliver a sermon tonight would be in direct violation of what Paul is saying here, that he does not allow, does not permit. But not only does he not allow her to teach or have that delivery of a public discourse, but he adds, or to have authority over a man. In other words, not to teach over the man, but to have authority in any other way over a man. Now, in other words, to do anything in public worship that would constitute having authority over the man, she is prohibited from doing. It is not just the delivery of a sermon that she is prohibited from engaging in. It is any other act of worship that would demonstrate authority over the man. Now, the word usurp is in the King James uh, Version, but the word usurp is not in the original text. The idea of not permitting a woman to teach or to have authority is really the better translation. Not to usurp authority. Why is that significant? Well, it's only significant because of what some have done with that word usurp uh, and with the concept that they uh, have tried to convey about it. In other words, they have contended, some have, that she cannot usurp the authority. In other words, she can't grab it from the man, take it by force, if you will. She can't usurp it as they view that. But if the elders give her permission to stand in this pulpit, then that's okay. She hasn't usurped anything. The elders let her do it. That's the dodge that some have used, and it's nothing but a dodge. The word usurps not in the original. The idea of what is there is this idea of having authority, not taking it away. She can't have it, period. Not only can she not take it away, she cannot have it in the first place, not when it comes to public worship, but to be in silence again. He reiterates that, and again, the word is quietness. So it becomes abundantly clear, does it not, what the prohibition is. And all that remains for us to answer is this. Was this prohibition permanent or was it temporary? Was it culture or was it continual commandment? Let the next two verses answer that question.
verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There you have it. That makes it abundantly clear that this commandment was not cultural. It was not based upon the situation at the time. But it was based upon, first of all, Paul says, the creation order. Adam was first formed. Eve was taken from his side to be his helpmate, a helper comparable to him, as the New King James says. Adam was first formed. That's the creation order. And there is significance, obviously, to that creation order. God intended for the man to be the head of the spiritual family and to be the leader of in public worship. And that's what God determined based upon the creation order. And that is one of the reasons that Paul gives. He says nothing here about the, the times in which he lived. Nothing whatsoever. Then he adds this reason. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Here Paul affirms that Eve led the way into sin by being deceived. Adam out of his Love for her and through her influence obviously ate of that fruit. He was not deceived as she was, but Eve led the way and she was deceived and led him into sin. And Paul says that is one of the reasons for that submission from that point on and forevermore. That is not temporary. There's absolutely nothing cultural. Nothing cultural at all about these reasons for male leadership and worship. And the context makes that abundantly clear. And every other passage in the New Testament confirms this eternal principle of male leadership. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3 beginning. When you look at Ephesians 5, 22 and following. And here is something I think is very significant about this cultural argument. Paul does, in 1 Corinthians 7, make an argument or issue some judgment, if you will, that was cultural in a sense because it related to the times in which the Corinthians found themselves. And I think this has some significance to it. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25 beginning. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. In other words, what? Because of the circumstances that existed in Corinth at that time. Because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is, that is, without a wife. But then he adds, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then listen to verse 28. But if you, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. In other words, he's saying, because of the present distress, I'm giving you this sound advice because I want to spare you the difficulty that you're going to have in these trying and persecuting times at Corinth. But if you go ahead and marry, you have not sinned. Now, let me ask you this. If 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, the remainder of that chapter is cultural in nature, the same man wrote it 
who wrote 1 Corinthians 7, if he intended it for it to be intended for it to be cultural and temporary, wouldn't he have indicated that in the text itself as he did in the 1 Corinthians 7 text? I would think so. And yet he indicated just the opposite. He made it abundantly clear that everything we've studied to this point was commandment for all time and not cultural and temporary. And then he adds in verse 15, Nevertheless, she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, there are different views on the meaning of saved in childbearing. One dominant, or well, one fairly popular view, I guess, is that it, it means um, through the birth of the Christ, that Christ would be born of woman. And that because Christ would be born of the woman, the plan of salvation would come through, through the woman in that effect, in that sense. And so, therefore, that's the meaning there. Another one is that childbearing is really a figure of speech, a synecdoche, where the part is put for the whole. And so childbearing is really representing her total role as homemaker, as wife, as mother, doing all of those things that are so vitally important to the welfare of the family in every way, that that is under consideration. And frankly, that's the view toward which I would lean strongly. But regardless of what he means by saved by childbearing, he adds this. The last part of the verse says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. In other words, women are going to have to, as men are going to have to, live holy, faithful lives of self-control. Women are not inferior to men. They're not inferior to men. And Galatians 3.28 makes it abundantly clear that they share in every spiritual blessing available to us in Christ Jesus. Remember what Paul said there? There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free or slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Tragically, some have taken that passage and taken it out of context and say, see there, a woman can do anything a man can do in worship because of what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28. What he wrote in Galatians 3.28 has nothing to do with leadership in worship. If so, he met himself coming back in 1 Timothy 2 where he prohibits the very thing he would be allowing in Galatians 3.28 if that's the case. No, Galatians 3.28 is just a passage that reminds us that all of us are partakers equally of every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that it doesn't matter about your economic background. It doesn't matter about your race. It doesn't matter about your gender. If we're in Christ, we're in Christ. And we all partake equally of those wonderful spiritual blessings, all of which are in Christ and none of which are outside of Christ. And so she's not inferior to man. And God has given woman an important responsibility. And that's an understatement, really in the family, and in the church for that matter. Though her role is limited, her influence is inestimable in both of those God-given realms, the home and the church. However, for the reasons cited in this lesson, he has given the male the leadership role in the home and in the house of God 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Our eternal salvation rests upon our respect for that divine arrangement and our respect for all of the teaching of the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And that's the word of Jesus tonight through Paul, the inspired apostle, that we have studied. We must respect it. But as we close, let me ask you, what about your respect for God's plan of salvation? How much respect do you have tonight for what Jesus said about belief? Except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. How much respect do you have for what Jesus said about repentance? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3, and repeat it again at verse 5. How much respect do you have for what Jesus said about confession when he said, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven. And how much respect do you have for what Jesus said about baptism when he said so clearly, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, Mark 16, 16. If you're here tonight as one who has not done those things, we hope you'll manifest the respect that you should and respond to the Lord's invitation because you simply cannot give lip service to what we've just outlined from God's Word. You must give life service to it. Commit your life to it in obeying the gospel of Christ, rising from a watery grave cleansed by the blood of Christ in that burial and water to walk in newness of life with a full respect continually for all of God's word, including the limitations that he has placed on woman's role in worship and the leadership role he has given to the man, recognizing, as you do, that truly God's way is not only the best way, it's the only way for us to go to heaven. And if you're here tonight as one who has in the past respected God's commands in obeying the gospel of Christ and living for a time in harmony with those teachings, but you know tonight that you no longer respect those teachings because you no longer walk in the light as you once did. It's our fervent prayer you'll come home in repentance, confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly, and ask us to pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you deeply and will welcome you home. As we stand to sing, will you come?